the last question then, and is something that I thought about because of your work uh, and the work that we did with the departure center, Schatzmark, these departure centers that the migrants are taken to while awaiting deportation, so rejected asylum seekers, for instance, are never named prisons by the state, but you were calling them prison camps deliberately instead of departure centers. Yes. And with your work on migrant detainability and migrant detention, I was wondering if you could maybe reflect upon this sort of ambiguity that these structures have, but maybe it would be useful if you present what the Castoisos of Schatzmark was about, why you thought it was important to call them prison camps instead of departure centers. Well, um, two years afterwards here, I, I felt like other other camps, yes, they they are draining in the mind, of course, because they're very far away from the cities and and again, talking about what Europe is. So I never expected, of course, I've always had stories, let's say, as you mentioned, in the Holocaust. Uh, it's, it's terrifying pictures you see about camps and detention. I always imagine that, okay, it's never going to go such far again. But two and a half years ago, they came this center called Shesmark, where people, they're just sending people who are either rejected or waiting to be removed or for some reason, and started piling them up there. But it was not just about the camp. The problem was just the system in which they used in running the place. After the space of two months, I started seeing people being really slim and shrinking because the food, the way they did all these things, just reminded you of the things you've had in one way or the other. Okay, maybe not in that extreme way, but it brings back these pictures of things that you could imagine that could happen. So in a in a camp in yeah a, yeah in in the detention camps in the new camps that was re- reopened uh, recently, so we we started protesting and like really making people to make people realize that okay look this might look like this outside like this but inside this is what they are really doing apparently in the way it looks yeah. outside just like I said before it doesn't you will see the gates yes uh, but the, the the assumption is that you can go in and out that they can check you, you can go in and out. But when you live in this place, you can generally imagine, because one who lives here would not be able to associate in any society. You cannot come into any society. There's no way for you. It's just like what you were talking about, either the Romans or either a migrant who has already been excluded. So there is these mechanisms that they have that, okay, there's an illusion that you can walk out, come back anytime you want, but you do not receive, in a state like Denmark, that's, um, if you're not either under a welfare or walking, there's no way you can survive or you become either a beggar. But when you're undocumented and either supposed to be in a deportation camp like that, then you have no choice because you have to be there every day to sign or every three days to sign. So after some months, I started realizing that one who actually lives here has no life outside of this place hmm. because you're not allowed to leave from Denmark to another EU country, rather directly to your own country, and you have to collaborate with the police before <laughs> um, they do that. And that could take, I talked to the guy who was running the place, and he said that could take indefinite. And anyone can die here. Um, you can die here as well. Uh, you can live here and die here. So mm-hmm. that really freaked me out to what the assumption of what a, a criminal is and to what just someone who is a, a refugee is. 
because someone who is in jail, of course, we know what his time in jail is going to be because he committed a crime. But for a refugee who is going to be in a place like this without no, how would you call it, um, life in this community in which you live, which you're already excluded from, uh, or you're excluded, which means you do not have a life and mm -hmm. you cannot have a, a life outside of this place. Or you go back to the country in which mm -hmm. you're coming from. So I, I personally saw it as a prison and a system in which to use to control people. But then it became more interesting when I heard that um, you were talking about it. So I would like you to elaborate a little bit about it. Hmm. Yeah, there you know, several of the points that I try to also emphasize, which is that you know, in many respects, if we look at the difference between criminal law and the more... Uh, what they call administrative procedures that have to do with immigration law as distinct bodies of law, then you, you suddenly discover that a common criminal has more rights than a person who is put into migrant detention. Mm. And that if you're in a prison, a proper prison, for a criminal offense, um, in many ways there are, you know, there are sort of legal safeguards that don't exist for someone who's deemed to be simply dispos disposable. Right. So to be a migrant who's in, uh, who's in some kind of uh, prolonged deportation proceeding, uh, who's in detention in relationship to the expectation of eventually being deported, uh, those are deemed to be basically human garbage, human rubbish, uh, to be disposed. Um, but that is only the culmination of what it always means to be illegalized as a migrant. You know, you're... You know, because you're produced as someone who can always, who always lives under that horizon of the possibility of being deported. Mm -hmm. So this is an idea that I call deportability, right? And the thing that's powerful and productive about deportability, the, the possibility of being deported, is that most people don't need to be deported. You just have to live under the threat of being, of being deported for it to condition your life and discipline you in a variety of ways. So then, similarly... Um, you know, detention opens up all kinds of interesting questions about that, about all those things you raise. It's a loss of liberty, you know, it's a spatial confinement, meaning you're put someplace where you're, uh, where you're stuck, um, but it also is an interruption in time, right? It mm. interrupts your life and any chance of planning for the future, mm. so it creates this kind of rupture in people's lives that is deeply, deeply unsettling, uh, for any sense of how to sort of live a life, right? So then it, you know, it, it exaggerates and it intensifies that sense of be having become a disposable person, right? And, of course, the indeterminacy of it, the indefinite character of it, right? which is, you know, you don't go, unlike a criminal who, you know, who goes to prison for a fixed period of time and has a clear set of uh, horizons, you know, uh, you could be in detention indefinitely. Right, yeah. um, and and that is a different kind of torture, right? You know, it lo doesn't look like torture. It doesn't take the form of uh, physical, uh, physical abuse, but it's hey, a, but it's abusive. Right? Talking about that, we wrote to the um, um, ombudsman about these places, and after a few weeks of his research or their research, they actually came up with the idea that no, it's not anything to do with torture because it's not proportionate enough. So I began to ask, when is it proportionate enough for you people to call it torture? Because when a state itself is forcing people, 
not to be able to decide what they can eat, for instance. Uh, someone who is a criminal, convicted criminal, can do that. I mean, I've been in jail before, and we, in the weeks, could choose what dishes we want to make mm. uh, if you're working in the kitchen. Mm. In exception of that, when you come out, there is a kitchen for the whole public mm. that anyone could cook. But for this set of migrants who haven't, the only crime was that they are rejected migrants, is that they cannot be able to choose this time I want to eat, this is what I would like to eat, or I would like to cook it in this form because such accessibility is not allowed for them. So I was asking this man, when is it okay enough for, before the Danish state is going to see that, okay, this is sort of everyday torture because you've had people in this system for such a long time that they cannot even start acting as if they are like mentally ill. No, and uh, even the language that is used, you know, to call it a departure, a departure center, you know, rather than something that's, you know, more accurate, which mm. is to say it's, you know, it's a, a deportation camp, it's a, um, it's a detention camp, um, you know, so, so you have the, you know, the proliferation of this kind of very vague language, you know, they don't say, in many places, they don't say deportation, they say removal. Right? <laughs> you know they yeah. they don't right. they don't say you know they don't say it's a you know they don't say it's a deportation center it's a departure center right mm-hmm. so you you know so you have this way that um this strange bureaucratic kind of uh mundane language is used to to depoliticize things right and of course as you say i mean there's there's a resemblance between you know, the experience in one kind of camp and another kind of camp. Yes. These are, in fact, a kind of concentration camp. They may not have ovens. They may not be designed to exterminate people in a physical way. They may not be used as prison labor camps, which was the other function of the Nazi concentration camps. Mm-hmm. They were actually prison labor camps. They worked people to death first, and then they killed them. You know, so in many ways, the the real functionality of the camps for the Nazis was not even simply to kill people off and exterminate them. That came only after. But uh, but so you have a variety of different kinds of camps, but they also have certain things that they share. And it's a useful and productive thing to think about those differences as well as the similarities, right? Again, uh, you know, what happens if someone commits a crime and go to prison, serve their sentence, and then they're supposed to be able to come out? Right. But if you're a non-citizen, it becomes frequently and increasingly, in many ca- in many countries, you know, you get a double punishment or a triple one, which is, you serve your time in prison as a criminal, and then when that's finished, they say, ah, but we've discovered also that now you, now you're going to be deported, so we'll put you in detention, yes. you know, and eventually, also deport you. Of course, for many people to be deported also means once they get back to the country that uh, you know they're sent back to, they might actually get put in detention or prison there again, as well, yes. yet again, you know, uh, and might indeed be uh, shipped off so to physical torture, <laughs> you know, depending on the country and depending on the circumstances. Um, so of course, so of course, it's hard to generalize across all the specific examples of particular countries and their specific legal regimes and their specific rules and uh, enforcement policies and so on. But nonetheless, we have to be able to, to see these kinds of resemblances across the different examples mm. and, and generalize from them in order to begin to, 
to develop uh, concepts that are useful to fight with, you know. And in the end, this is this is what's at stake. Right? It's not just an interesting intellectual problem yes. or some kind of exercise in pure academic reflection, but rather uh, an attempt to have more precise and more critical concepts that allow us then to you know to inform how we struggle over these things. Mm. And and in many ways, that means that. For me, as an academic, uh, part of my job is to reflect upon the same things that are coming directly from your own lived experience. Yeah. You know, um, in the same way that you and people listening to this program, you know, have to varying extents and in different ways lived these lived these yes. things. Um, the people that are, you know, th- it means that it means that you are already formulating a theory about these things, you're already struggling with how to get the right concepts uh, with which to name this experience and to struggle against it. So the first place of struggle is, you know, in, in the experiences of the people who are subjected to these things. But then, of course, there's also various kinds of activist solidarity movements. Um, and again, part of my mission is to give, you know, is to give people tools to think with exactly. as a way to then um, think differently in order to struggle differently, mm. right? Um, and a big, you know, a big part of the problem is that we cannot ever allow ourselves to be trapped within the existing dominant language and um, assumptions, um, or else, or else the ways in which we can struggle come to be very narrowly defined and very trapped within the existing system. So then we need we need to be able to think outside of the box, so to speak. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's been awesome having you, uh, Nicola. Nicholas, I mean, um, and I really wish people are going to be able to use both activists, uh, the the citizens themselves, uh, intellectuals. I really wish you can be able to use many of what you've said today and learn from it and maybe start to think differently and work together against the system, I hope. And hope that someday uh, you will be coming back again to visit us and maybe have a more better lectures with us. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you very much for today. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you. Radio 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 The Bridge Radio.